3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. The time is 7am on the 23rd of March. You're joined here by me, Genevieve, Fung and Steph. Morning. Good morning. Morning. How's everyone feeling this morning? Good. Good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It's a bit gross outside, but... It's really... I wasn't expecting it to be so um, humid and muggy this week. It's been so humid. Yeah. I hate the humidity. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the weather now. 98% humidity. Um, which is pretty... <laughs> that's yeah, that's intense. intense. Yeah, because yeah, it's like extremely... Usually when it rains in Melbourne, I feel like it's usually cold. So for it to be like warm is like a very weird... Mm-hmm. I always feel very like, what the hell? Yeah, quite disoriented. Yeah. Um, speaking of the weather, <laughs> it's going to be 98% humidity. <laughs> uh, but it's also going to be a top of 19, a low of 17... Um, so reasonably warm as well today and raining pretty much all day. So wear your raincoats, everyone. Um, all right. As always, we have a packed show today, um, covering a lot of bases. Uh, yeah, there's a quite a lot of things to talk about. Um, interview wise, we are going to be replaying some of the incredible broadcasting that happened on Sunday for the Binary Busting uh, broadcast. Um, And that would be uh, Priya from Thursday Brekkie spoke with architect and DJ Simona Kastrikum um, about how to build a more inclusive world uh, for trans and gender diverse people. Um, And then we're going to be playing also an interview uh, that was played on the Black Block yesterday uh, with Robbie and Meriki, um, with Claire Land, and it's about the Northland Secondary College event, uh, A Fight for Survival. Um, should be really good. And then I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Dr. Amy Vasalo, who's a researcher and a PhD candidate, um, specifically doing research in uh, gender, sex and medicine, and in terms of how to... I guess, make policies and practices that uh, kind of make researchers and make studies have to incorporate uh, gender and sex into their research because you'll be very surprised how many studies do not even um, test on women and gender-diverse people at all. So that was really good. Um, Yeah, so we're going to play just a quick little announcement and then we'll be back with the news headlines. And they're coming to evict When you want renters right. Then you gotta join the fight. 
28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au Join your Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, today. Rahu.org.au A 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're tuned to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. These are the news headlines for Tuesday, 23rd of March. Severe floods continue to impact communities in New South Wales. 18,000 people have been evacuated and there have been over 5,000 insurance claims so far. These are the biggest floods in the area since 1961 and being called a one in a hundred year flood. There's concern about how much this will impact people's ability to get insurance and how much it will cost given the frequency of extreme weather events. Some of the affected communities were impacted by bushfires less than 18 months ago. The Bureau of Meteorology has predicted up to 80 millimetres of rain today. Today marks the second day of Extinction Rebellion's week of action across the country. The group is holding rallies and actions in capital cities to draw attention to the climate emergency. In Canberra, scandal continues in Parliament. Uh, You might have seen yesterday video leaked of some staffers performing inappropriate acts in the building, which they allegedly filmed and shared in a Facebook messenger group. This comes after weeks of discussion about the culture in Parliament and how safe it is for women. And last night's Four Corners featured an interview with the security guard who was working when the alleged assault took place in Parliament House. Fung and Jen, did either of you happen to see that or have you been following along? Yeah, I didn't get to see Four Corners last night, but I have been following what's been going on in Canberra lately. And like, I just, yeah, I don't even have words really to talk about it. It's kind of hard to comprehend, I guess, just the length of this whole process and the more I guess they find out and um, yeah I'm just uh, reading a bit I didn't watch the four corners either but um, I believe that the security guard had been working at Parliament House for 12 years and she found Miss Higgins in the office of the then Defence Industry Minister Linda Reynolds after the alleged rape um, and Ms. Anderson has also questioned the Prime Minister's claim. Ms. Anderson is the security mm. guard, sorry. Um, claim that there was a security breach at Parliament House, saying she wants to make it clear that the security guards on duty that night of the incident followed the correct procedures. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even talking about it, I mean, I was talking about it with my friends the other night. You know, Brittany Higgins has to kind of relive this every time this comes up yeah. in the media, every time there's more investigations. And I mean, not just Brittany Higgins, every person that I guess has experienced sexual violence or sexual assault has to relive some sort of aspect of their own trauma when this comes up in the media. So I can't imagine what they're all going through. Um, in terms of the flood stuff, I actually saw this um, quite incredible footage Obviously, you know, insects, animals, like mm. fleeing floodwaters and stuff. 
there were these like spiders that are just like, <laughs> sorry, sorry everyone, <laughs> this is gonna be a bit, <laughs> but um, all these insects and stuff had like climbed this like railing fence and just like had covered the fence just like to escape like the ground and like the floods. It was just like the most, oh my god, that's quite amazing. Yeah, or, but also really. Awful, awful, like really yeah. sad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like the start of a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I feel like you know the insects and the animals usually get forgotten, mm. and they're also like pretty badly affected by this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, and finally, controversy surrounds the upcoming Dark Mofo Festival held in Tasmania, which I feel like is often the case, but. Um, this time around, the festival's organisers have asked for expressions, expressions of interest from First Nations people from countries colonised by the British Empire. So they're asking people to donate blood for a project about the Union Jack flag by Spanish artist Santiago Sierra. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of pushback against this, given how much blood has already mm. been shed by First Nations people. Um, I saw yesterday that Dark Mofo released a statement and stated that self-expression is a fundamental human right, um, and so the project would continue. Have either of you been following this? Uh, yeah, I feel like there's been a real um, grassroots sort of push from a lot of First Nations artists and from the community in general about this. So I think we were talking about this actually the other... No, yesterday, that there hasn't been much in the media... Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot on social media, um, you know, which is where all these um, posts and, and where this sort of fight and pushback is, is happening, but not much really um, elsewhere. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, I guess, topic in terms of interrogating art and, I guess, what's the line between when art starts to be exploitative mm. um, and I mean there's a lot of clear lines in history but with this and especially with Dark Mofo I know that uh, the person that uh, runs it has come under some critique in the past um, about this sort of stuff but um, you know Dark Mofo is I guess known for pushing boundaries or like, you know, doing some extremely controversial or experimental stuff, but it's kind of like, you know, is art an excuse for just kind mm. of being, um, yeah, exploitative or using it as a commodification to like, mm. bring more people and kind of like ticking that box of, okay, yeah, we covered, um, you know, First Nations um, issues, uh, tick and kind of not really like going further than that yeah yeah and I think there's such a history in this country of First Nations artists being exploited by like white art dealers mm. and you know not being compensated for their work and this just kind of seems like a variation of that but so extreme yeah definitely um I just reading a tweet from Claire Coleman who mm. Um, is an Indigenous author and poet, and um, she said a colonizer artist intending to produce art with the actual blood of colonized people is abusive. Colonizing and re-traumatizing the idea is disgusting and terrible and should not have been considered. Yeah, I mean, that kind of sums it up right there, to be honest. Mm. It'll be interesting to see 
what will happen next in the lead up to the festival. Yeah. Uh, I did see one of the one artists. Um, I forgot their name, but they decided to pull out. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what else is going to happen in this space in the next month or so. Yeah, it's coming up. Mm. Um, yeah, well, we'll be following that story. Um, let's go to a quick announcement and then, yeah, we'll be back with a track. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And so now we're just going to play a song by Nunga artist Bumpy, and it is called Falling.
just a temporary love. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? You've been crawling under my skin, waiting for me to let you in. Some things are better left unsaid. 'Cause the minute you open the door, I just couldn't forget that I'm for.
You're on Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR Community Radio. Uh, the time is 20 past 7 on the 23rd of March. Uh, we're going to play you um, a very special conversation that happened uh, on Sunday for our binary busting broadcast. If you missed it, it was uh, seven hours of trans and gender diverse radio um, in the lead up to the 2021 Transgender Day of Visibility. Um, so it was like 12 to 7 p.m., um, all ge- trans and gender diverse people presenting. And we're lucky enough to be playing um, one of the interviews that happened that day uh, with uh, Priya from Tuesday, uh, sorry, Tuesday Brecky, Thursday Brecky. Um, uh, and they spoke with renowned architect and DJ Simona Kastrikum about how to build a more inclusive world as part of the Binary Busting Broadcast. You're listening to the Binary Busting Broadcast on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. This is an interview with Simona Kastrikum. Simona Kastrikum is an independent solo artist, one half of the duo SAD, and an underground DJ. She also runs the 100% independent record label Trans Brunswick Express. As an educator and PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, her work explores queer intersections in architecture, music, the city, and public space. Simona is a community radio broadcaster at 3RRR Melbourne and an associate of Parlor, Women, Equity, Architecture. Thank you so much for joining me, Simona. My pleasure, Priya. It's good to be with you. (laughs) Yes, I'm so keen for this discussion because I think it is incredibly timely. So maybe before we jump into it, uh, do you want to let listeners know a bit more about your own creative practice and your work? Well, yeah, uh, I guess I sort of, I'm trying to understand how music and architecture and gender are somewhat connected in um, how I not only understand my own experience of space, um, and how I also like, I guess, sort of formulate ideas and speculate, uh, I guess, conditions within which to navigate space as a gender non-conforming person. So for me, like, there's this wonderful relationship between music and architecture that's always been ever-present for me. Music has this really fascinating way of articulating ideas about architecture and articulating ideas about gender that, you know, sort of like outside the realm of what the academy wants you to do or outside the realm of what neoliberal architecture wants me to do. You know, it's like I can articulate more about the experience of being gender non-conforming or my experience of being gender non-conforming in the city with a five-minute pop song at a show or at a festival and that I can communicate that to so many more people and you know like I've had someone walk up to me after like Golden Plains and say exactly that so the proof is sort of there for me and but also like music connects to effective conditions in a way that words can't And, you know, for me, like, I've always understood the experience of the city and, I guess, like, speculations about space and the city through sort of the soundtrack and through cinema and the relationship between sound and vision for me. So, 
they've always just seemed to, for me, to be very important, you know, methods of communication about architecture and space. I'd be really interested um, if you could speak to the sort of trans production or experience of space um, and the relationship between that and music. Well, I mean, the first thing that I think of <clears throat> is, I mean, just as, as a musician, like, I mean, I occupy this space on a stage and I think that, you know, within histories of gender non-conforming spatial production, if you like, is like a lot of it is around sort of like performance or it's around entertainment spaces. And so when I think about it, I guess, in my own lifetime or my own context, you know, it is around performing, it is around releasing a record, it is around DJing, it is around also like dancing. So not only like me, I guess, as like, you know, the person on stage being the artist, but also like the punter, you know. Um, but it's a space that we come together and we create community and we can enjoy you know, art and, and we, you know, we, we listen to sort of people's narratives. Those narratives are often like a real sort of window to the soul, but that's also like where we pass down, I think, sort of stories as well. I think that tradition of being on stage, whether it be through drag or whether it be through um, cabaret uh, or... And how gender nonconformity has really been such a huge part of that, I think, over the last you know, say 100 years in so many different cities around the world and in so many different, uh, you know, cultures as well. But I guess, like, within my work, I've been interested in how that informs, like, I guess what, what we call in architecture and urban planning, I guess, like urban morphology. And I'm interested in the evolution of the gender non-conforming city. And I'm interested in how cities... I guess, give rise to a critical mass of gender non-conforming people and what conditions they experience. And the thing that I'm finding is that, um, you know, we, like cities are a place of hostility for minorities, you know, across the board. And so from the perspective as a gender non-conforming person, I'm interested in how trans and gender diverse spatial production occurs within this relationship of risk and safety and um, against that hostility. We still manage to find places of connection, of safety, of celebration, of protest, of resistance. And I'm looking at sort of like how, you know, how does that evolve over time? What is that sense of displacement? What is that sense of semi-permanence, of temporality? Like how does temporality kind of like work within that? Um, and, but aside from that, you know, I'm also looking at how architecture imposes hostility upon that as well. You know, if I look at, if I look at architecture, I'm really looking at, you know, I'm, I'm critiquing architecture and I'm interrogating architecture, you know, as this very neoliberal, you know, pursuit that 
imposes very strict conditions upon people. You've been listening to an interview with Simona Castricum as part of 3CR's Binary Busting broadcast. This is The Present by Simona Castricum.
and we're back on 3CR 855 AM. And as part of the Binary Busting broadcast, I'm interviewing Simona Castricum. You just heard Simona's track, The Present. You know, it's like on the weekend, like I just went to La Fag, you know. We occupied a basement and a loft of a, you know, four-story building, you know, in the middle of the city. And our entry was kind of like off the off the rear laneway, which I, I think is an absolute fascinating way of occupying, you know, space and the interface, you know, that we have. It's like, um, you know, a lot of people will malign what the city looks like from the street, like, say, like from its, you know, from its front door. But I almost feel like queer and transpatial production is kind of like we always, we're always like accessing space from like the back door. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like it, it's about how we sort of like look at the in, we, we we're like trying to find the infill. Which we're, we're we're occupying the basement. We're occupying like the loft, the garage, all of these things. And um, you know, it's like we'll make we'll make space in the gutter. We'll make space in the street. We'll make space in the park. All of these sorts of stuff, you know. And you know, it's um, for seven hours over a night. A club will be a place that we can get together and and hang out with each other and celebrate each other's music. Shall celebrate our friendships. You know, it's like. Friday night was like the first time so many of us through lockdown like saw each other in a year. You know, it was completely overwhelming how many people I hadn't seen in so long. But that was the beauty of it as well. And, you know, I think if anything, lockdown just made me cherish those spaces just so much and just of how important they are. Um, you know, but they're also like incredibly difficult spaces to be in. Like they're not necessarily spaces for everybody. You know, I think too, it's worth thinking about how clubs um, might be accessible for some people, but they're also not accessible for a lot of people as well. So I think there's still a way to go. I, I don't think that, that nightclubs, like queer nightclubs, are like where everyone can meet. But I, I guess I am looking at how at some point through our lives, we all get together, whether it be at the parade or whether it be at the carnival and the park. And there is a whole different ways that we can make these spaces accessible for our community. And I'm interested in how we can do that more as, as queer and trans people. It, you know, the whole sort of ideas around safer space and celebratory space, I'm kind of like for who, for how many people, you know, yeah, because I think um, especially when we when we think about mainstream discussions around producing safer spaces or what a safe space might look like, a lot of it comes down to just bare aesthetics, you know, chucking up a flag, putting up a slogan. Uh, but obviously it's so much more than that. Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of people kind of say to me, like, what's an example of a space that's safe for trans and gender diverse people? Or they ask, like, what's queering architecture? And I'm just like, it, it's not what it looks like. For me, it's like, how does this space feel? Do I feel included? Do I feel 
as if me or my cohort or I guess like the di- you know the the diversity within which my cohort sort of how that is represented like is that has that been considered um and so like ideas of like surface and texture and form and space and you know form and spatial considerations I think they're a really privileged discussion in architecture and they're not really they're not really discussions that I can even get to as an architect I'm sure I could contribute to them you know because obviously like I'm more than my transness within architecture but you know like someone asked me a question a couple of weeks ago like why is this so important for you to speak about around sort of relationships of transpatial production or queer spatial production and I'm like well because we are excluded from space in no uncertain terms and that's doing serious damage so yes I might have the capacity to design a villa here or there but I'm sort of like not interested in that at the moment because at the moment we've got you know just over seven out of ten trans and gender diverse people are having trouble accessing a bathroom and that's not acceptable you know most cis people will will take 90 seconds to access a bathroom front door by the time they their body tells them that they need to use a bathroom and they will get to that bathroom and there's a whole range of things that they won't have to consider they won't have to consider their own safety they won't have to consider um whether they're going to be kicked out they won't have had to change the food or drink that they've consumed all of these things that we have to consider as trans and gender diverse people that cis people don't have to consider for the most part so you know that's 90 seconds you know and if the trans tipping point was seven years ago well how long should it wait to use the bathroom in without having to worry about any of those things like the humanity in the conversation is just ridiculous that was um incredible conversation that Priya from Thursday Brecky had with DJ Simona, DJ and architect, sorry, Simona Kastrikam. Um, we're going to go to a track now. So this track, uh, I'll just give a quick language warning before we embark on this track. Um, it's by a Melbourne-based artist um, called Bitch, and it's called Nice. And the song, I feel like, is really good for this current political climate um it's very angry um justifiably and i think that it's cathartic as well um here it is
So that was Nice by Bitch, um, and I think that it's a really great song for, I think a lot of people, um, especially women, non-binary folk, would feel like this is a really good song to listen to at this moment in time. Cool, and now we're going to hear from Rob and Mariki from the show Black Block. Uh, they spoke to Claire Land the other day about the Northland Secondary College event, A Fight for Survival. Claire co-authored the Decolonising Solidarity book with Uncle Rob and Gary Foley, and Claire also helped launch, I think with Gary Foley, the, the, Northlands, the Northlands exhibition. So welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you for coming on. No worries. Pleasure. How are you going? I'm good. I'm a little bit, little bit tired out because... You know that thing where you were working towards an, an event and then you kind of collapse afterwards. But yeah, I'm good, really, really stoked. Yeah. Well, ha- how did the event go? It was beautiful. It was a really, really important kind of regathering of of people from the struggle in '92 to '95, and many people hadn't been back to the school um, in years. Um, the site of the struggle, which was Northland Secondary College, now Northern College of the Arts and Technology. So it was um, kind of a, a launch of, of being able to start sharing some stories and it was also a kind of return to that particular place and a chance for people who were involved to get back together. Yeah, that's wonderful. Can you um, tell us some of the um, the people that came along with you who, who were the speakers there? I saw in photos Uncle Rob and Gary Foley. Did you have any other speakers? And what were some of the main takeaway points from um, those speakers? Also, Uncle Rob's going to join me in the yarn as well because he was there and he's here with me now. Yeah, um, so Uncle Robbie and um, Professor Foley, the Koori Youth Will Shakespeare's dance group, which um, was started off at... Northlands or Preston East Tech School, which it was called up until 1991. And um, Al Thorpe spoke. He's a member of the Spears and he was a student at the school, went through the whole struggle and came out the other side. And then other speakers included the Darabin Mayor because the, the um, exhibition was sponsored by Fuse Darabin Festival. Um, Rafaela Galati Brown, who was the principal at the school in 1991 through, and she's still there now but she has been at the school for 40 years, so she was a, a junior teacher there through to becoming principal. I remember um, Rafaela. Um, yeah? I can't say her name. <laughs> Rafaela. Did she fail yeah, Rafaela. Oh, she actually <laughs> did, so I had a big speak <laughs> with her. Um, I was there because I went to Northland, and Rafa- she was the principal there when I was there, and let's just say we didn't... I, I wasn't a good kid, though, so in her defence, I was not an easy kid to be with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, and then um, Lynn Thorpe spoke, Jill Morgan and Muslima Sinipan, one of the students who took the government to court under equal opportunity um, legislation to to complain that this decision to close Northland Secondary College, a decision made by the Kennett government at the end of 1992, to complain that that was actually race discrimination. Um, and that all the Aboriginal children at the school would be the most affected by the closure. And and so Muthama, with Bruce Foley, put that complaint in, and they, they did win that in the end, which was a pretty... It was a really significant legal victory. 
and then there was a whole like there was a multifaceted campaign. There was a rebel school that ran throughout the whole time, and everyone had to pull together, stick together. So it was great that Muslim spoke, and then also former former <coughs> teachers and community members and students performed. So Amos Roach sang it. Um, Dave Arden and Kutcher Edwards both sang. So it was pretty beautiful, I have to say. Wow. I'm sorry I missed it. Yeah, I've yeah. got wonderful memories and really there's not a lot of blackfellas I know that didn't go. I just feel like it was the northern suburbs hub because we were mainly pushed out of Fitzroy um, into Preston and the northern suburbs area and that's where we all sort of we all went. And um, it was a wonderful school and I just have memories of... Um, Young Ray Thomas and I were in the same year, so um, he really comes to mind when we talk about Northlands. And I just want to acknowledge Ray Thomas, um, who was killed by police in 2017, and he was a real he was um, he was a heart and soul for a lot of young fellows around that that area, and they really looked up to him. So, and that's what comes to mind for me when I went to that school for a short time. So, appreciate that. Yeah, and like you said, it was it was a place where all the Aboriginal people seemed to go because it was the only place which was really a positive experience with the education system, and um, and it was the school with the largest enrolment of Aboriginal children anywhere in the state. Um, so it was just an outrage; it was closed. Um, it had been named in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report just the year before as a school that was really a positive in regards to all of the issues and um, and also like you were saying that part of the gathering and um, and what we showed there was to commemorate and and um, to commemorate those mem- members of the community who, who have now passed and too many have, have passed since that time and it was a, a major act of race discrimination and that impacts people so it's it was a, a victory um, politically, but it was it took such a heavy toll, and um, you, you you would know that um, much more than me as someone who is part of the community and lived and lived through and still lived through that. Uncle Rob, what were some of the things that you spoke about and your observations of Northlands um, Secondary College? <clears throat> I just want to say thank you to Claire for putting on a really mad exhibition there on the weekend and all the, all the people involved. Um, it is a great story, you know. I, I grieve, you know, I, I live through that that, um, that struggle. Um, my story of Northland started when, when my children actually went to school. I, you know, I, I know what the education system's like in this country. It was racist when I went to school. I, I ran into racist, institutionalised racism in school when I was in primary school. But I was forewarned by my family about who Lieutenant or Captain Cook was and all that sort of stuff. That, anyway, I, I said to myself, is this racism still here like it is? I'm going I'm to go to the schools with my kids to try to protect them from racism in the schools, you know. And, and what was good about Northland was um, we had uh, Auntie uh, Deidre and Auntie Lynn who were like mothers for our kids at that school who... But without them, it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have happened. People wouldn't have gravitated there and felt safe. And like we had people batting on a higher level for our kids. Me, me and Foley actually got onto the school council just shortly before the school was closed. You know, and we're starting to 
do some really good stuff there. Uh, it, was a, it was a rare uh, public school where you could learn something about Aboriginal culture. In fact, it was the only one in the state, which is what helped us win the case in terms of the, the race discrimination case. That which is fascinating that you and Uncle, uh, you and Gary were on that, the school council. School council, yeah. That would have been some interesting times in those school council. Well, we didn't really get a good go at it. We got closed shortly after, and, and I was getting frustrated. I, I actually walked away before, resigned before the thing hit and then Rafael come knocking on my door at 12 common crisis and said, Bobby, you've got to come back down here. They closed our school. Yeah. I said, yeah. No, no, sort of, yeah, I said, yeah, I'll come and help. And, um, and, and, and the, the main thing is about it was the Koori Youthville Shakespeare's, and I, I want to acknowledge the late Dr. Bruce McGuinness for that, for that, um, that quote, Koori Youthville Shakespeare's. That was his. And I said, I thought that would make a great name for a, um, a dance group. And, and, and that was, it was the Koori Youthville Shakespeare's Dance Theatre. Because yeah, the school's gone on to an incredible, um, uh, it's got all the facilities for, for theatre now, amazing <coughs> technological stuff. They train VFL umpires out there. You know, this school could have been lost to the community, not just Aboriginal mm. people. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit sad that we aren't, we haven't got the numbers there like we used to have. But, yeah. But it's there. And if yeah. you want to go to a good school and got the understanding of Aboriginal people, Anyway, I'm getting off the track for that question. But, um, yeah, it was um, very much part of my life. And I wanted to go there and be involved with my kids' education, make sure that, you know, uh, you know this was that sort of level of ed- uh, racism going on. So we spent a lot of time with, um, with, the, with the teachers in the, in the school environment, you know, in, in the um, staff rooms and things like that. So there was a sort of... As a community school... And a community hub. It was more than a school by the sounds of it. Yeah. No, yeah. This, this is when it was just a regular school. Oh, okay. And, but it was starting to put Aboriginal input into it. And it was small, but it was good. And um, we were lucky to have it, actually. It was just out of spite that our school got closed. It wasn't part of the, uh, the schedule of closing schools in Victoria. Jeff Kennett done, done just out of spite. And that's what caught up to him at the end of the day. It was, it was a racist act. Mm. He closed down the code schools too, didn't he? Is well, that right? Yeah, the code schools is an interesting aspect of this whole thing because um, the, the Kennett government actually um, opened the code schools yes. with VI during this dispute. It, as an as a alternative. Oh, yes. so and that's And by that. doing that, that actually, impa- that actually was an attempt to prevent... Uh the reopening of Northland because the legal case was around what Robbie was just saying is of, of that there was no alternative for Aboriginal children. So there was nowhere else they could go. And so by, by opening this school, the code schools, the government was then trying to argue in court um, that, well, oh, well, Aboriginal children should just go to the code school so we don't have to reopen Northland. So it was actually a major, major issue during the, the, the campaign and a huge wild card that was... a massive danger to Northland and so um, because the struggle had gone on for two and a half years and the government had appealed the Equal Opportunity Board decision to the, uh, the, the um, Supreme Court and then the children then appealed to the full bench of the Supreme Court, all this sort of stuff and then it went back to the Equal Opportunity Board and the, their task at the end was to consider whether the best way to address the race discrimination was to reopen the school or, or whether there was some other way to resolve it and so the um, 
the chair of VAI at the time um, gave evidence against the Northland children um, to say, oh, no, um, yeah, they can just go to the code school. But she also had to admit that the code school didn't have community support. And so that, but then actually, like you say, then later in, in about 2007, the code schools ended up being closed. <clears throat> mm, they weren't supported. I went to a code schools. Um, and w- that's so interesting. And that's, you know, another example, and I don't want to obviously go too far down that road, but um, another example about of how... Aboriginal organisations can be used against us and the, and the needs of the community. Um, and, you know, that's just a real shame to hear about that history. And I do really appreciate people, you know, like Uncle Rob, um, Gary Foley and yourself, Claire, for maintaining that history and keeping that alive because that can get lost very easily. So I appreciate the work yeah. that's gone into it. Yeah, and it's a real honour to be involved. I'm, I'm understanding more and more as I go... Um, the importance of that school, the importance of that struggle, what it takes to win something like that. And these dirty tactics by the government of um, dividing people, you know, like it has been a dream for some people to have a Koori school and it's also been um, something positive for some Aboriginal people to, to have a school which is a, a state school where you can live in two worlds and, and that's that's an, that's another approach. And so um, the government there's, was able to support that kind of stuff. There's also a situation where we can have a school run by Aboriginal people where non-Aboriginal people are welcome to come and learn from us and the way that we do things, you know. There's a real opportunity there to create, you know, we, I could see it. Where's the black university? Oh. It has solved a lot of problems, you know. And we're sharing people and... You know, we've been missing out on education. You know, my daughter had to leave school basically because of what happened there at 15. Mm. You know, and it's, just, it's a common history here. For my mum loves school, yeah, but couldn't go to school. You know, there's always been these problems. You know, there's been like a trying to prevent us from learning, and 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 it's, and it's not the people; it's the government behind it. As it's per the system, usual. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And I had a terrible, I mean, an awful experience of the education uh-huh. system. Coming from um, Lake Tyres where, you know, I went to Yapra and then I went to Nana Primary School and I was only, and then I went to the Code School. So all of my pr- early years and primary school years was just with blackfellas. Then when I got mm-hmm. into the um, secondary school system, I spoke differently. I was different. And my, I was the top of the class in grade six, and then when in, in year seven, I just, it just flat, I just did not care about school, and and the only thing that you know, mum even said that the principal admitted that they couldn't, they couldn't um, cater to my needs as an Aboriginal student. So I just, I hated school, never, I hated it, every bit of it, never go back there. No, that's where it changes for our people. Yeah. Like, I remember back in the health service days, we wanted to be in control of our lives from birth to death, mm-hmm. including, you know, and have a say in, in, in our life's journey here. And, uh, you know, we had, we had some great uh, childcare arrangements. Primary wasn't so bad, but as soon as you step into that secondary, it all changed, and it's a major failure. Very mainstream. It's, it's got to be an inquiry about why that does happen. It's, it's institutionalised issues here. That's, yes. That's, that's the reasons for it. It's, you know, we're quite capable people. People should realise that, you know, we can do anything. What about, you know, and I hope that this comes up also. I mean, we're going to talk about this later in the show, but I hope that this, the, the experience of Aboriginal people within the education systems is within the scope of the Truth and Reconciliation Royal Commission because, our, you know, I'm still struggling. Right now I'm trying to do university as a 33-year-old. Other 30, white 33-year-olds all 
have vastly different lives. It's, it's a, it impacts our quality of life if we do make it through life. You know, a lot of the kids that I went to code school with are dead or in jail. That's the reality for us. So if you can make it past not going to jail or whether you're dead or you go to university at a later stage, we're always still falling behind. And that's why you see that, the, and dare I say it because I hate this measurement, but the gap, it exists because of systems like I the education the abyss. system. The abyss. <laughs> well, of their making too. They dig in yeah, a hole. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, they I stop digging a hole. Yep, true. Anyway. Well, thanks for coming on, Claire. I really appreciate your work and... Um, and Uncle Rob's work and Gary Foley's work in this space and um, yeah, what is it? Keep keep fight, keep punching. Is that what you say, Uncle Rob? Keep yeah, keep punching. <laughs> it's round two hundred fifty one. Let you know um, the exhibition. You can still see um, it's at NCAT, Northern College of the Arts and Technology, in Preston East, opposite Northland Shopping Centre, and it's actually seems like it's going to be extended. The school wants to keep it open a bit longer, so it was just going to be this week, but I think it's going to be open during school hours for at least through the end of the school, uh, the beginning of the school holidays. So, yeah, get along. It should, it, it should be in a public place, like in a... In a like, why doesn't Darabin take it on for a while, the exhibition, so it's accessible to more people? You know, a school environment's not... You know, it's good, but... Or it should be out there in the mainstream, sort of. Or the yeah. Crew Heritage Trust. And it's going to grow from here. Yeah, I think It'll so. grow from here. And we, we've booked in to bring it to, to Bundjalaka later in the year um, and and to extend it and develop it. So people have already come and said, oh, I've got I've got some things at home that I kept from yes. that time. And, you know, and, and yeah. it's really great. People want to tell done a great job their story. And, off yeah, clear. good. Uh, the other thing is um, there's going to be a book written by uh, Moira Rayner, who was the Race Discrimination Commissioner at the time, and Gary Foley going to combine to write the book and probably f- develop a, uh, a, the, the musical from that as well. So oh there, there's yeah, a whole plan of events coming up here. Fantastic. Yeah, a great opportunity for people to get involved. Your, your boy. Actually, tickets are on sale for the cabaret, so there's going to be Northland's political cabaret Part of your we haven't even got the cabaret done, but there's tickets, tickets on already. sale. <laughs> Are you serious? Probably, shush, shush. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. No, we, we, we're deadly. We can do it. We're the masters at doing that stuff. Exactly. I'm sure between um, all of us we can pull an event together. Yeah, no, we, we're, we've got it there. We're thinking it for a long, <laughs> long time. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. too deadly. Some positive news. Right. Thank you very much, cool. Claire. Thank okay. you. You're yeah. listening Thanks, to... Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Claire. You're listening to 3CR, The Black Book, and with Mariki, and I've got um, Uncle Rob helping me with um, technical, the, the, technical, technical the technical side of things. I want to play in honour of Northland's secondary, Kobe D, still standing. That was an interview that was done on The Black Block uh, yesterday with Mariki and Robbie uh, with Claire Land, um, titled A Fight for Survival. Um, we're going to go to a quick announcement, and then I'm going to play you a conversation that I had with a very special guest. When you land on a dick. Woo-hoo! And they're coming to evict. Woo-hoo! When you want renters' right. The 28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. 
The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian Government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au Join your Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, today. Rahu.org.au A 3CR supporter. All right, we're going to go to an interview now that um, I did with Dr. Amy Vassalo. Um, Amy Vassalo is a professor and researcher, and um, yeah, hope you enjoy this interview. Today on Tuesday Breakfast, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Vassalo, who's a research fellow in the Global Women's Health Program at the George Institute for Global Health. She has a background in medical science, postgraduate qualifications in public health, and a PhD in epidemiology. Amy is also a founding peer advisory group member of Franklin Women, a grassroots and social enterprise supporting and advocating for women working in health and medical research. Her current research, which we will be talking about today, focuses on an understanding of sex and gender-based blindness and bias within health and medical research and developing evidence-based policy reform and other approaches to address these gaps, especially here in Australia. Thank you so much for joining um, us, Amy, on Tuesday breakfast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. I'm really excited uh, to talk about this issue. It's an issue that I think has a lot of gaps, especially in uh, talking, being talked about in uh, the media, especially. Um, so extremely excited to talk to you. Um, I wanted to just start off with a bit of background um, into sex and gender-based bias in the medical sphere. Uh, firstly, could you please explain, you know, what sex and gender-based bias looks like, especially in the historical lens, um, which I guess frames most of the biases today? Of course, yes. Um, great question to, to get us started with. Um, so we do say that there are sex and gender-based biases and blindnesses throughout the medical research pipeline. Um, so that includes preclinical research, which is early experiments that are typically conducted with cells and animal models, to clinical research, which is when we um, start to conduct trials with humans, and also ongoing monitoring and surveillance. Uh, so there are there are four issues in particular um, that I would like to bring up today. Some of them are have historical roots, but all of these issues are still current today um, in today's medical research practice. So firstly, women are typically recruited to clinical research studies at a lower rate to men. It was only in the 1990s that um, this this data gap really started to become recognised and women were actually specifically required to become involved in clinical research. Um, but we still have research published today that only recruited men to their studies. Um, yet these research makes statements about how the findings of their research have implications for the whole population. Secondly, if studies um, do recruit different sexes or genders to the research, they often don't disaggregate their findings. So what that means is in publications about these research studies, data isn't split up by gender, and therefore we don't have specific safety or efficacy um, data for different genders, and the implications of this is unknown. 
certain group, groups are also um, continue to be routinely excluded from clinical trial research altogether, particularly people who are pregnant, lactating or um, trying to conceive. So this situation hasn't changed and this situation didn't change with, for example, uh, the COVID vaccine development. So that means we don't have important information to guide public health or clinical advice for these groups. And we also can't ignore disparities in the medical research workforce with um, substantially fewer women in leadership positions. And these are the people who are setting the research agenda and priorities, and therefore it does have an impact on the research questions that typically are funded and typically focused on in Australian medical research. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, it would seem obvious to many people to, you know, include study of women and gender diverse people's um, cells, especially pregnant women, um, in clinical research. So it makes it extremely hard to grapple with the idea that this uh, still doesn't happen. Um, why do you think gender and sex has been ignored in research when it impacts so many people? Absolutely. Great question. So I have no doubt that the intention of these policies and practices was intended to to protect women and to protect unborn children, but times have changed and women are not just small men. Um, but there are another there are some more complex issues as well. So women are considered more complicated to study. There's lots of hormones going on. Things are much more complicated. There's a lot of confounders. And if we're looking to um, assess the effective intervention on outcome, men were considered a simpler model in which to study that impact. Uh, there are also logistical difficulties. Women are typically in um, primary caregiving roles. It's more difficult for them to participate, just logistically participate in clinical trials, turn up at a certain place at a certain time in order to be involved. So there are um, logistical difficulties as well. Yeah, and I think um, you spoke a little bit about it before, specifically in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we've seen a lot of these medical biases uh, more apparent than ever, you know, with the race to find the vaccine and uh, more people accessing medical services. And I guess the medical um, system more in, you know, the media and more being more talked about. Um, what kind of gendered impacts have stuck out for you, I guess, when considering the last year? Sure. Um, I, th I think COVID is a very interesting example for which um, us to talk about sex and gender biases and blindnesses within medical research. There are a few in issues that I think are of interest. So um, when we look at the data about um, COVID incidents, we do see uh, pretty much even um, incidence between men and women. So the same numbers of men and women are getting COVID. Uh, so you could stop there and say, okay, there are, there are no sex differences. But if you look further at the data, you'll see that uh, there are, that men generally, there is a higher rate of severe COVID in men. They also have more ICU admissions and also higher deaths in men. But when you look at some of the social impacts of COVID, if you look at increases in domestic violence, if you look at increases in which uh, 
sectors had the largest job losses. If you look at when workforces started to work from home, which uh, groups were the ones that had greatest decrease in productivity, the largest impacts were seen in women. So that shows that you can't just ask one question in a sex disaggregated way. Uh, who gets COVID, you need to ask um, multiple questions in, in a sex disaggregated way to, to get the full picture of the impact of COVID. Definitely. I actually love that point, to be honest. I like haven't heard many people speak about it in that way. But um, yeah, you know, it's more complicated than just looking at the obvious, you know, uh, COVID-19 virus and how I guess the pandemic in a whole has impacted um, everyone. Um, and I guess before I want to go into the research that you've done, um, just a rough indication of, you know, what sort of implications does this sort of bias have for women and gender non-conforming people? Sure. Great question. So um, the first thing that I would like to say on that is that we have a huge we have a lack of data about women, but we have a huge lack of data about gender diverse people. Um, there are different ways that different data systems collect sex and gender data. So there are huge data gaps. Um, the impact of COVID is one example. Um, no region that I am aware of is is publicly um presenting incidents or severity data for trans and gender diverse people. So a huge data gap there. Where we do have data, it's typically about men and women. And we can see, for example, um, hip implants, I think, are an interesting example of this. So original studies in the biomechanics of hip implants were conducted in um, men, and then women were given smaller of the same hip implants, but we do see that hip implants are more than twice as likely to fail in women compared to men because women are not just small men. Um, biomechanics and the way that we move is different, and this wasn't taken into account during the original development of these implants. Yeah, I, I, lo I love the – I mean, it's so true, like the idea of us you know, women and being small men, I think that's like kind of a scarily accurate way of how they, we were being pictured in the medical world as well. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and we're joined by Dr. Amy Vassalo, who's a research fellow in the Global Women's Health Program at the George Institute for Global Health. We are discussing gender and sex bias in medical and health research and what we can do through policy reform and other approaches to address this issue. Um, I want to go into your research now, uh, which uh, goes into how, I guess, different countries and continents are implementing policies and practices um, around analysis of sex and gender in studies. And you especially talk about Australia and what Australia lacks um, in comparison uh, could you please speak a bit about Australia's current practices and policies around medical research, um, intersex and gender, and I guess how this stacks up against other nations? Sure. So internationally, some progress, this, this problem of data bias, but also data blindness is known internationally and that we do probably have a lot of information about women within existing clinical trials, but because the data isn't presented in a sex or gender disaggregated way, it's hidden. Um, so internationally, uh, 
policies have been put into place to change the way that medical research is funded, conducted and published to ensure that uh, we address that data blindness and that we present the results of medical research in a sex disaggregated way and also that we stop just recruiting one gender to a research question that actually impacts the whole population. So those are two of the main things that internationally policies have been put in place to address. In Australia, um, so, so colleagues of mine, um, Dr. Cheryl Carcel and Dr. Zoe Weiner, ha- did conduct, and others at the George Institute, did conduct a review of 10 of the top medical research funders in Australia and 10 of the top medical journals in Australia to see if they have policies in place for um, these two issues. And unfortunately, we did find that Australia is lagging behind in terms of specific policies directing researchers to the way they collect data and the way that they present data about their research. Yeah, and um, in the research as well, and I think in um, your very fabulous blog that I was reading just before this, um, what are some of your, yeah, it's, it's really it's really well put together, um, what are some of your proposals for Australian health and medical research for integrating sex and gender into studies and what kind of policies and practices you know, should be considered? Great question. So um, the way that what we believe is that we need to address this holistically by the whole medical and research, health and medical research sector. So it can't just be one group mandating some, a, a solution. There, it really is a part to play for all organisations across the sector. So that includes funders, journals, researchers, people conducting research, um, people also teaching at universities or medical research institutes how teaching the next generation of researchers and the next generation of health professionals. Um, Also people who, uh, we call them evidence synthesizers, people who pull research evidence together to make um, clinical practice guidelines or public health recommendations, and also societies and advocacy groups, they have a part to play as well, as well as um, healthcare consumers and people who participate in research. Uh, So there is a role to play for everyone. Um, We do have a list of recommendations in an open access publication in the Medical Journal of a Australia um, that, that lists some specific recommendations for each group that people, um, I, I can pass you a link to that, that people can have a read of if they would like some further information about this. Um, but I'll tell you just high level a, a couple of examples. Um, for medical research funders, follow, to follow a similar approach to overseas, um, to put some requirements in place around um, the delivery of funding and if a project is funded by um, this organisation, that they recruit different genders to the study if it's a health issue that impacts different genders and also that they disaggregate their research findings. And even if um, that research study doesn't find any differences between sexes and genders, still to have that sex disaggregated data available and published to facilitate future um, combining of research data between multiple studies that are looking at the same intervention so that over time we can build a larger evidence space about um, sex and gender differences or the way that a particular um, intervention is impacted by sex or gender. Another example for uh, 
medical researchers is um, to when we have, for example, new PhD students, when we're training the next generation of researchers, is to teach them about these concepts. I didn't learn it much at all about sex and gender um, or sex disaggregated analysis techniques um, when I was at uni uh, and also the next generation of health professionals to, to really be taking a gender-sensitive approach to the way that they provide clinical care. Yeah, and we'll definitely be putting those links up on our website as well so our listeners can access them. And I also just wanted to touch on, because I know that um, this is something that's really important for you and considering your role at Franklin Women, which is, you know, a grassroots social enterprise for helping women break into medical research fields and also supporting women already working within these fields. Do you think hope also lies in leadership of women and gender diverse peoples in this space? Absolutely. Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so there has been historical as well as current disparities in, in medical research leadership with um, while relatively equal numbers of men and women um, enter medical research. By the time there is a substantial dropout of women at mid-career and by the time we get to leadership levels, we do have more men in positions of leadership within the health and medical research sector. And that lack of diversity at leadership does impact on medical research priority settings and it's known in other industries that increasing diversity at the top and at decision-making does um, make for better business outcomes. And we believe that we'll be able to see the same results in the medical research sector. Yeah, definitely. And just on a final note, um, you know, I would love you to share exactly where people can access your blog um, and any other, you know, information or if people have found this topic really interesting, where they can access more information. Also, we will be putting this all on our website as well. But if you wanted to just verbalise it, that would be great. Um, sure. So I can tell you about the, the blog post that we have written that provides an overview of some of these um, issues. And they're called the, that's called the gender based data gap in Australian medical research is a problem for everybody. Um, you can also refer to the George Institute for Global Health website and the um, Global Women's Health Program page of the George Institute for Global Health does have some information about the current studies that we have going on, including this Sex and Gender Policies uh, website. And you can also find me on Twitter. I can provide a link and um, would love to have conversations with anyone who's interested in this field. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. Such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Genevieve. That was Dr. Amy. Today, Vassalo. I have a sorry, technical difficulty back here. Uh, sorry, Dr. Amy Vassalo um, talking about. Um, research and studies uh, into gender and sex and how researchers and studies should uh, include gender and sex um, within their research. Uh, we're going to go to a track now. So this track is by Yolungu artist Baker Boy. Um, it's his most recent track that's featuring Dallas Woods and Sampa the Great, and it's called Better Days.
ain't no fairy tale when you live in hell. Trust me, that's a story I know very well. Bad weather, no umbrella, it gets better. Seen it with my own eyes, uh. Money and job, you ain't got one. How you gon' raise my godson? Adoption. I know that's not an option. Your baby mama watching. Other girls and their husbands, they whip cribs and kids. That's how a family functions. We face obstacles, that's not cool. But you got to choose what's best for you. I see you trying to better yourself and trying to better your health. I see you getting closer every day. Get your super understanding what the master plan. Me nigga ukuluwa trying to find another hand. I'm pushing through the storm, being deader than I am. When I make a bigger stride, I was trying to push me down. Man, I'm bigger than the image and the fans. Vision is precision, I can see right through the brand. See right through the smoke. Life is not a joke. When I finally drop my mask, my mirror, it almost broke. I was hoping the storm would go away. Darkest times are grateful, better days. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Hey, Choose to feel lately, don't know how to feel, don't know what's fake or real. So I get my mental straight, run my problems with the pencil, break therapeutic. If it puts me in a better place, I gotta do it. Instead of losing myself, I found music, real talk. I've been down and out, and now I'm back now. You can't count me out, I never back down. And that goes to anybody with problems. I get help, but maybe we can solve them. Nothing really got to ripple left like war. Man, I got no issue. Just know that I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. We will give it up. That was uh, Better Days by Baker Boy, Sound for the Great, and Dallas Woods. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space 
living cocoa ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcocoa.com or on Facebook and Instagram. And we're going to play one more song by Baker Boy called Meditin. Music is the Meditin! You got neck brace, no problem. You got two left feet, can't catch that beat. Take a deep breath, cause I got this yo. Baker Boy featuring Jess B and the song is called Medigen. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.